Hello, and thank you for downloading this episode of the Morted Muse podcast. If anybody wants to contact me, they can do so. The email address is, as always, jim at themaltedmuse.com. And you can also contact me through my website, which is www.themaltedmuse.com. And there you will find um, more information and some links and a contact form that you can use to contact me with. Now, I want to start this episode by just mentioning very briefly Whiskey Magazine. Now, if if you've never come across Whiskey Magazine, you live in the UK, I would recommend it. It's a beautifully put together, well-illustrated, informative and occasionally funny um, magazine, believe it or not, about whiskey. And you can subscribe to this magazine by going to www.whiskey.com whiskeymag.com or of course you can order it through your local news agent that's if they're any good you can anyway now the reason i'm i'm mentioning this magazine at the moment is because i've recently received my latest copy the issue 93 which covers february and march 2011 and it's got some lovely articles in here there's an american bias this edition But it's not the only thing that is in there. But they've got features such as has Kentucky lost its mojo, bourbons getting fatter, a piece of history, um, which is Dominic Roscrow profiling the return of Old Crow whiskey, um, designs on whiskey, which is looking at the new Highland Park 50-year-old bottle. And I have to say... That is a beautiful-looking bottle of whiskey. Um, a life less ordinary, which is Dave Broom celebrating the life of Rita Cohen, Japan's whiskey heroine, and Up on the Hill, um, which again is going back to talking about American whiskey, and in this case, that bump from George Washington. But there's more stuff in here as well. There's things about food. There's things about new releases. There's a lovely article about travel retail um, at Dublin Airport. Um, Distillery focuses, visitor guides. There's news um, items. There's a whole load of stuff in there. But one that I've mentioned already is bourbons getting fatter. And uh, there's a short article there about fat washing whiskey. And um, I'm going to come back to that in just a little moment. Now, the luxury of having a podcast is that ability to be able to say whatever I like. Well, within reason. I mean, obviously, I don't want to start saying words like or or even with a grapefruit but what i can say is i can express my own opinion i don't have to rely on any corporate pressure to say certain things so if i want to say a whiskey's bad i can say that whiskey's bad if i can if i want to say i disagree with this i can say that and I'm only really responsible for myself. And that's why I can say without fear things like, 
raising the question, is a do's buckwheat whiskey actually a whiskey if it's made from buckwheat, which is not a type of wheat? Is it whiskey or is it something else? Now, I can raise those questions without the fear of being quelled by a parenting company overseeing me, because there is none. I was involved in doing some consultancy work recently for a company that is wanting to do something with whiskey and they wanted some advice from me about whether it's possible to do that and what would be a good whiskey to use for it and what the other alternatives were. Now I can't say exactly what that project was involved in for, for certain reasons. But what it did do is it got me thinking a little bit more about the way that whiskey is used. That whiskey is used not as only as a straight drink, but it's, it's mixed with, it can be anyway, it can be mixed with things, with water, with coke, within cocktails, and we're learning more and more about matching whiskey to food, um, both matching the whiskey with food, but actually using the whiskey within food as well. We've even got to the point of putting fat within whiskey, then taking it out again, this fat washing process. But as I said earlier, a little bit more about that in a moment. But see, that has got me thinking, why is it that there aren't more whiskies actually being made for those specific purposes and really being labelled as such? Why is it we're not actually seeing quite a few whiskies on the market clearly labelled as this whisky has been made for going in coffee? Now, this is a whisky to be used as an ingredient with fish, for example, or this whiskey is ideal for certain cocktails and listing them. Now, one of the things that got me thinking this was a little memory going back to reading the book by um, Jim Murray, Classic Irish Whiskey. Now, in the edition I've got, we've got page 104, and it's talking about um, a whiskey here called Dumfries. Few whiskies have more curious history than Dumfries. In effect, it was an Irish whisky to be drunk anything but straight. The 1950s saw Irish whisky enjoy a mini boom in the United States for the most unlikely of reasons. A modest craze swept the nation, the drinking of Irish coffee. To fan the flames of this craze, it was thought a good idea to produce as cheap an Irish whisky as possible, which people would buy especially for that purpose. While they could keep their better, more expensive brands safely in their cocktail cabinets for more serious drinking. It was decided to create a whisky which was light in nature, so a blend was produced. And then it, it goes on. I don't like reading too much direct out of books. I just feel that I'm stealing other people's work when I do that. But I, th I thought that summed it up. And if ever you get a chance to see a bottle of Dumfries, the label on it is a bit like the old um, Guinness, bottled Guinness labels that you used to get. Now, the idea of, the, of Dumfries whiskey seems to be make a light, cheap whiskey but do it specifically so that it's there 
for people to put in coffee. It doesn't have to be a really good whiskey. But actually on the label, even then, it doesn't say anything about coffee. Not that I can remember either. When I look on my notes, I had um, Dumfries whiskey in Ireland, bought it from the old Centra supermarket in Carndonna, um before it moved actually. It was in June 2002 and the full bottle cost me 15 euros. 40% ABV and I'm not going to read out all my notes here but I've one of the things I wrote down was described by Jim Murray as a terrible disappointment and keep it for the coffee cup if that's what it was made for and with coffee it makes a good drink then why not it saves the other stuff for more serious drinking making a whiskey appropriate for a specific thing. Brookladdy's Rocks, which I believe was made with the idea that it'd be good to have ice in it. That was the function of it. This one was made for the function of going into coffee. And it just makes me think, why aren't we seeing more of that sort of marketing going on with whiskey? And in doing so gives permission to experiment and do other things with whiskey without feeling that you're breaking those boundaries that some people set up of what you shouldn't do with a with a a single malt well it doesn't matter does it because that is what that whiskey is then made for now fat washing now that is taking that to another extreme in my view I've heard some people talk, like Jim Murray, for example, I've heard him on podcasts talk about not putting whiskey, and not putting water into the, into the whiskey. What a bad thing it is to do that, and sort of defending that. God only knows what he'd think about the idea of fat washing. Now, the idea of fat washing, as I can gather, is when you, you cook something like bacon, take the fat off the bacon, mix it into the whiskey, and then once the, the, the fat in there has congealed, take the fat off, strain it, and the flavors will be left within the whiskey. Well, that's the idea. I had to try it, didn't I? Okay, so what I've got in front of me here is two measures of whiskey. I didn't want to do this with expensive whiskey, so as it's an experiment, I'm just using a supermarket's own label Irish whiskey. And I'm going to try just the normal one here. Nice sweet nose. Not particularly comp complex, not a particularly complex nose, but it has got a, a nice hint of caramel, little hint of spice, and it's not at all unpleasant. And it it looks a fairly decent colour, um, slightly mid to light, and the legs on it not particularly great in any way, but. Not at all bad, a bit fast, generally medium in every way. Acceptable, but not outstanding. For its price bracket, good value. Now on the taste. 
it's a bit hollow in all honesty it has a bit of smoothness there it has a bit of sweetness to it um, but it's this very sweet fondant texture and flavor to it with on the other side a slight burning sensation to it um, with not a great deal in between again for its price bracket yeah it's good value um, but not by any means the best whiskey I've tasted but acceptable now in this other glass I've got exactly the same whiskey but this one's been fat washed now how have I fat washed it I don't believe I'm going to say this um, but what I've done is I've cooked some bacon I've cooked a lot of bacon and I then took the bacon out of the frying pan it was cooked well the fat that was left in the frying pan I poured into the whiskey I gave it a bit of a shake agitated it for a while let it cool I then sieved it and took the, the fat off and the idea being is that some of the flavours of the oils from the bacon should now be infused within this whiskey. So let's just give this a test. And yes, it's got a completely different nose to the first one. And even though it's the same whiskey, it does have that smell of a burnt frying pan. It does have that smell of cold cooking fat. Um, the legs on it are closer together um, maybe marginally thicker I'm not too sure about that they seem actually to be a little bit slower but I can't go over that nose I have to say the nose is as unpleasant as it most likely sounds Ah, and on the taste and on the taste that is horrible Oh, that is horrible. That is um, that is something that that's a glass of whiskey that I am not going to be finishing. There's quite a sickly texture to that. Um, it does give you that sense of cold grease in the mouth, burnt chip fat. Not at all pleasant. So my conclusion on fat washing Irish whiskey, anyway. Oh no, I wouldn't do that experiment again. Now, I'm saying that, but of course, what if that had been rich, smoky bacon? And I was putting that into something with a lovely sweet underbelly, such as a bourbon, or perhaps even a smoky whiskey. Would that have made a difference? And what if I was putting that whiskey, not as I was drinking it like that neat, but I was actually putting that fat washed whiskey into a cocktail now the other ingredients of a cocktail may actually bond with the oils in that and make a really good cocktail although going on the flavor of it i'm not too sure i'm going to be in any great rush whatsoever to um to try that it's experiment worth trying just for me to know not to try it again but having said that the article does make it sound rather attractive and I feel pretty certain that in the hands of an expert who can do this job properly and can mix all that within a cocktail it could be a winner but I certainly wouldn't try that 
with anything more expensive than I tried that experiment with. Sometimes, I like to match a story to a whiskey. A story that's got nothing to do with the whiskey directly, but, but somehow matches the character and or the experience that a whiskey gives in some way. Now, I hope to, that I've actually done this in previous episodes, and I hope to do it again in future episodes. But in this episode, in this episode, I actually think the whiskey itself is the story. Now, one of the questions is where to start the story. I don't know. I think the best place to start it is in January. January 2011. When a private jet lands in Scotland. Now the jet has carried five very important passengers. And maybe it'd be a good idea to spend a little time getting to know each one of them. Now the first passenger we meet is the impressive, and that's the best word I can think for the man, the impressive Dr. V.J. Malia. Now I can't give a whole life story of this man, but let's just start when he's 28 years old. 28 years old, and he's elected as chairman of one of India's largest conglomerates, the UB Group. But, you know, that's not when he's only 28 years old and no disrespect to the man in any way, but a few years have passed since then. And during that time, he's not been idle in any way whatsoever. He has developed and grown in business and in interests. Along the way, this man's been involved in brand names that have intertwined into our daily living. I can almost guarantee that there'd be at least one or two, if not even more things, that you, the listener, will be involved in that's got something to do with this man. And that's to put it mildly. Now, whether that's a bit of house painting done with a paint company that he's involved with, or some computer software that you're using, um, or television that you're watching, or even the food that you're eating. Dr. VJ Malia has, and seriously has, been involved in big company names behind these sort of things. Now this must take a lot of time, but he still has had time for sport. In fact, he has sponsored many sporting events, including Formula One racing teams. He has won international awards and supported many good and charitable causes. But there are two main areas that throw him into this story and they are both linked by a bird. And that bird is a kingfisher. Now kingfisher is a well-known brand of beer and it was Dr. V.J. Malia who, when his father was chairman of the UB group, managed the relaunch of the brand. 
This interest in this line of business extended in 2007 when another branch of the business managed to get 100% of White and McKay. And it was White and McKay who needed help from another of these kingfishers. Well, in a way, another branch of the company is Kingfisher Aviation. And another one of Dr. V.J. Malia's interests is aviation. Put all these things together with the need for a personal touch and we find Dr. V.J. Malia as one of the passengers in his own private jet. Now we'll we're, we're come back to link all those things together in a little while. But let's look at one of the other passengers. Another one of the passengers is the nose, or as he is more formally known, Richard Patterson. A very well-dressed and well-groomed man with a reputation for being on top of his trade. A true craftsman, a legend in his own right, and a man of passionate beliefs. Just pour some water straight from the hot tap into his whiskey and you may just see that passion. This man has a good reason to be on the plane for he is the guardian. He has three generations of whiskey knowledge running through his veins and a lifetime of experience honing his skills. He joined White and McKay in 1970 and rose to be their master blender in just five years. A highly awarded and respected man who is the star of the White and McKay podcasts where one can see and hear just a hint of his passion. He's also the author of the book Goodness Knows. Okay, so that's two of the important passengers. And let's be honest, they sound very important people. One a giant in the world of business, the other a craftsman of the absolute highest level. But on this day, both of them, and the private jet itself, were there to serve the other three passengers who could only travel by private jet. These other three passengers were superstars, not of stage, not of screen, not even of the frail world of politics, but superstars nonetheless. Now to understand these three passengers, we have to travel back in time, and we have to travel quite a time back in time. Okay, so we've gone back to the 19th century and two illicit distillers, one known as Johnny Blue and the other a blacksmith and a cooper and Johnny's partner, a Donald McKinley. Now it was Donald who used his cooperage skills to make barrels for butter. Well, that is barrels with a hidden internal place for smuggling whiskey that could be surrounded by butter. Donald had a son, Charles McKinley, 
born 1809, and after joining forces in business, which were then dissolved, he eventually formed his own company in 1847, and although he died in 1867, he had developed a whisky by the name of the original McKinley, a version of which is still on the market today. The other thing he did is he established a strong distilling company. Now, Charles's son James took over the company and in turn made a partner of his brother, Charles W. And in 1875, they started McKinley's Vatted Old Benvolic, one of the first blended Scotch whiskies. The company grew, as did the fame and their influence, especially as within their company they had certain, shall we say, to become stars in the whisky world working for them. Now to name just two of them, James Buchanan and the very famous Tommy Dewar, who I believe originally worked for them as a cashier. Now, as the company grew, they built the Glenmore Distillery and were to be the first to malt barley using saladine boxes. They bought other companies trading in sherry and cognac, and another Charles McKinley took a partnership, James's son this time, although his brother, Charles W., sadly passed away. Now, in 1907, the company was asked by a man, Sir Ernest Shackleton, to provide him with a quantity of their whisky, because this was to be the official Scotch whisky for his Antarctic expedition. Now, all of the whisky went with him, and not all of it was drunk, and some was to lay in wait in those freezing Antarctic conditions. Now, I believe that that whisky was actually donated by the company, and I believe that Richard Patterson of White and McKay has actually got a letter from Sir Ernest Shackleton to the McKinley Company, um, virtually stating as such and saying how much whisky there was there. Now, the McKinley Company carried on, both growing, developing, and influencing until eventually being bought out by Invergordon Distillers, which was, in turn, bought out by White and McKay. Now, to carry on with this story, we need to stick with that time of 1907 for a moment. That was when Sir Ernest Shackleton requested a stock of whiskey. But who was Shackleton? Okay, let's go back up in time a bit more. 1874, and we see the birth of Ernest Shackleton. This takes place in County Kildare, at a time when the potato crop failure was happening, and the huge recession and depression was about to hit. His father was a farmer, and faced with that oncoming depression, he managed by just leaving the farm. He left the farm to Trinity College, Dublin, and then he trained in medicine. And then he moved to England. 
and the suburbs of London. Now his father wanted him to follow him into medicine, but instead, at the tender age of 16, he left. He went to Liverpool and he joined the rigger Hofton Tower, on which he then sailed and faced two months' worth of storms around that treacherous area known as Cape Horn, with both food and water running out. Now you'd have thought that would have put him off, but no, despite such an experience at such a young age, he carried on, and by the age of 24 he qualified to command a British ship anywhere in the world. Now he could have gone anywhere in the world, but for some reason he found this strange attraction to the cold, to the poles, and in particular to the South Pole and both wrote and then eventually went in person to volunteer for Scott's expedition to the South Pole. Now he started that expedition with Scott but he became ill halfway through and was sent home on a relief ship. Scott remained there amongst some great controversy Scott stayed on there for two winters and that Shackleton was actually asked to head a team, a rescue mission, to bring them back. But he actually turned it down. Instead he became a journalist and a public speaker amongst other things. And he also married. Now in 1907 the plans were out for a return expedition to Antarctica. And yes, the journey began, base camps set up, scientific experiments conducted, and then, in the spring, Shackleton and a small team set off for the South Pole. Now, despite injury, and I do mean injury, I mean, there's members of the team there with snow blindness, there was one that was kicked by one of the, one of the donkeys, um, to the point where the injury went straight through to the bone and in those conditions slight injuries become big problems very quickly despite very poor rations and fatigue and with, with these are things beyond my comprehension I mean I can I can read articles about it I can read books about it I can relay things that are written down but do I truly understand them as I'm in this warm room in my own home, sat on my comfy sofa, speaking into my wonderful modern technology, with my central heating going, do I, can I really understand the conditions this man was under? No, I can't. He got within 97 miles of the pole, closer than anyone had ever got at that point. But they turned round and headed for home. This time luckily with the wind behind them. And they managed to get away before winter froze them in. But although they got away, they left things behind. They left behind camps and some of their stores. Now just going back to this whole thing about him turning back. And do I truly understand this? I believe that. He sent message to his wife or told his wife that I thought you'd rather have a live donkey than a dead lion. Do you know that is such a good attitude to have? 
Almost a hundred years later, January 2006. What's that? Five years before the plane journey that we started this story in? Conservators of this small wooden hut off Cape Royds found some of his stores and sparked excitement round the whiskey world. What was found were not dead donkeys, but in many ways were live lions. Five cases of whiskey and brandy. And despite its age and freezing conditions, and we're talking to temperatures of minus 50 degrees centigrade, and despite ice forming inside some of the, some of the crates, liquid could be heard inside when the crates were moved. In fact, when the crates were eventually taken out, whiskey could even be smelt in the surrounding ice. Now, why is this so exciting? Are you kidding? Okay, well, if the story itself was not enough, or if the location wasn't dramatic enough, or the sheer age wasn't insignificant enough, there's still another significant feature, and that is, since the time when that whiskey was put there, the world has changed, technology has advanced, the world has shrunk and become much more multicultural, and this has been reflected in changes and trends of taste. This, coupled with the fact that the recipe for this whisky had long been lost, makes this an important discovery. If only we could get the whisky out and analyse it. The Antarctic Heritage Trust began the process. At first, the crates were frozen in. And on top of this, international treaties prevent anything found in Antarctica being removed. Now these obstacles were to be slowly overcome, and I mean slowly. The crates were removed, and one was taken to Canterbury Museum, New Zealand, and three bottles were allocated to be taken to Scotland for analysis at White and McKay's lab, under the watchful knows, if that makes sense, of Richard Patterson. But how to get it there? It would take too long to go by sea, and it's too delicate to go into the cargo hold of an aeroplane. If only someone had a private jet. And so that takes us back to the beginning of this story. Dr Vijay Malia on his private jet with Richard Patterson both serving the needs of the other three important passengers, the three bottles of McKinley whiskey. Now the plan is for a syringe to pass through the sides of the corks in these bottles and samples to be removed and analysed. Will they be tasted? Well, I must be honest, I don't know. But if I was there and I was taking samples out. God, it'd be very hard temptation to resist, wouldn't it? And that taste would be interesting. Whiskey 
was not such a popular drink in those days when that whiskey was made as many people found it overly heavy in its flavour but this was to change partly due to the introduction of blending more and grain whiskies together and this was occurring around the time that this whisky was being produced so it could be heavy it's likely to be peaty but until it's examined we can't be sure and if it is examined it may be possible to copy it and then it will raise another question after the initial curiosity has passed away will we like it or will taste preferences have changed so much that the general public well maybe they don't think it's so great but I'll tell you something what an experiment what a discovery piece of true history just frozen there in time and what a testament as well to all the people that are involved in all this to, to Shackleton to his team to Dr VJ Malia and all the work that he's done to Richard Patterson and and his team as well and the development of great school there and not forgetting that the, the people of the Antarctic Heritage Trust and all that work preserving it and guiding this whole process through and the sensitivity of doing it and being very careful with it and in time returning it all back to that to that camp but what also a testament to the whiskey itself to engross us with such interest such potential this is a story that's not finished yet and we wait to see what the next stages are going to be well thank you for downloading this episode of the Morton News podcast as I said at the beginning, if you want to contact me, please do so. The email address is jim at com. Now, before I go, I just want to say that it's one of those weird things that's happened today. I was busy working away, thinking to myself about the ado question. You know, is it whiskey? Isn't it whiskey? Um, wondering why I hadn't got a response from, from the distillery thinking to myself well what do I do next about this I, I just I just want clarification I want to understand why it can be called whiskey if I don't understand that it is whiskey um, and then I got thought to myself well I get home and I'll get the podcast out and then I'll start thinking about um, who I can contact how to how to get clarification on this and lo and behold in my inbox there is an email from the distillery now unfortunately the email is in french and i don't speak french so i've had to use one of these on the web translation services and the email says something like hello mr martin we have received your email and first of all we apologize for the delay in answering you we are a small scale and family business and the month of january is a month of slowing activity the question you ask us about buckwheat whiskey is a question often asked 
and I prefer to respond to you in French to be sure of our words. The resolution of the Council of the European Communities, dated May 29, 1989, defines whisky as a spirit drink produced by distillation of a mash of cereals. Then, the same regulation stipulates that the drink comes from exclusive distillation of wine-fermented full grains of wheat, barley, oats, rye or buckwheat with all their elements. I think actually the translation service didn't quite get that little bit right, but I do know um, what they're talking about. Of course, we interviewed French for DGCCRF to be really sure. To our knowledge, we are the only ones in the world to develop buckwheat whiskey. It is different from the others. It is refined, highly aromatic and fruity. Little by little, our range expands. We have essentially two types of Edu. Edu, our brand, meaning buckwheat in Breton. Pure wheat black, silver and gold, and ver the version of 2010 gold being exhausted very quickly. The 2011 Edu gold version will be available only in the month of June. Pure buckwheat reserve small distribution. Then the special blend, 30% of buckwheat and 70% of barley, is reserved for large distribution. I hope I have answered your questions and if you have the opportunity to come to Brittany this summer to see us, we are glad to offer you an enjoyable tour of the distillery. Now, I really appreciate that email and at first glance I thought, well, that's cleared things up, but I am just not 100% certain. So Belt Embraces job here, I go to that regulation and the regulation is the council regulation EEC number 1576-89 of the 29th of May 1989 laying down general rules on the definition, description and presentation of spirit drinks. And at the base of let me just on the base of page four we have section B to do with whiskey and it's defined as a spirit drink produced by the distillation of a mash of cereals sacrificed by the diastase of the malt contained therein with or without other natural enzymes. The fermented fermented by the action of yeast, distilled at less than 94.8% ABV, so that the distillate has an aroma and taste derived from the raw materials used and matured for at least three years in wooden casks not exceeding 700 litres capacity. Then it moves on to C, which is the next category. And there's nothing in that category there that I've just read out about whiskey that mentions buckwheat. 
it says a mash of cereals and as I've spoken about before my understanding and I could be wrong on this and if I am wrong and somebody knows better please let me know but my understanding is buckwheat is not a cereal so therefore it doesn't fall into that category now to clarify what was said in the email I got back where they actually did mention buckwheat let's read on because the next section comes under the title Grain Spirit. A spirit drink produced by the distillation of a fermented mash of cereals and having organoleptic characteristics derived from the raw materials used. And then it talks a little bit about a, a German drink that isn't relevant to what we're talking about here and then goes on to say either exclusively by the distillation of a fermented mash of whole grains of wheat barley oats rye or buckwheat with all their component parts now that is where buckwheat is mentioned now I have to say two things about this the first thing is buckwheat is mentioned there but I have I actually disagree with it being there if it's not a grain how can it be there under the under the term grain spirit but even if you ignore that factor it is still there under the category of grain spirit it's not there under the category of malt whiskey it's not there under the category of whiskey let alone malt whiskey and yet a do silver which is the one i'm looking at right now and i believe the same thing happens for a do gold is that it is categorized on the label as whiskey single malt now my understanding of a single malt is it's single because it comes from one distillery it's malt because it's made from malted barley this is made from buckwheat Adu, th thank you for sending me that email I have to say however I still don't understand how it can be called whiskey if anybody does understand this if I'm being dense please let me know if anybody thinks I'm being daft and making a mountain out of a molehill please let me know and I don't want to to t take this up a level or anything like that but to me the fact that it's saying it's single malt whiskey when it's made from something that is not an ingredient of whiskey is a bit like saying it's the difference between a silver cup or a stainless steel cup or a cut crystal glass and a glass glass and now on both those examples the two things are very similar by description the stainless steel and the silver they're both white metals they're both shiny they're both cups that you can pour things into you can drink out of them what's the difference well the difference is one is silver and the other stainless steel they're both functional they both can be very attractive but one is one thing one's the other with the glass and the cut crystal yet they can look very similar at times they can fulfill the same purpose 
But the reality is, one is glass, the other is cut crystal. And with this, my understanding of this is it can be a really nice drink. And I have to say, it looks a beautiful drink and the packaging is beautiful. I love it. And there are times I actually really like the flavour of it. Not, not all the time, but the flavour is very characteristic. And I do like characteristic flavours. But the fact is, with my understanding, unless I'm told I'm wrong, it just simply isn't whiskey. As simple as that. Anyway, I've rambled enough on this. Um, I have emailed the distillery back. I've also emailed some other people to try to get some advice and clarification. And um, I'll, I'll, let, I'll let you know in future broadcasts um, what revelations I get on this. In the meantime, I'd like to say that I've enjoyed making this episode, most of it anyway. I will confess that the sampling of the fat-washed whiskey, not the high point of, of the process really. In fact, if I was totally honest, I felt a bit queasy for the whole day after I, I tried it and I actually only had a little sip. It left the inside of my mouth feeling like I'd licked an old frying pan. Felt very greasy. Maybe I did it wrong. Anyway, all for the sake of experimentation. I've done this, so you don't need to. Um, but apart from that, I have enjoyed it, and I do hope you've enjoyed listening to it. And I hope you'll listen again to next week's episode, and uh, and the one after that, and the one after that. I have had a few technical problems, I will confess. If anybody was looking at the back catalogue of episodes, they may have noticed that the first two episodes dropped off the um, the list for a while. Um, I've sorted that one out, and that shouldn't happen again for quite some time. And when I get to that point again, I've got a plan B to sort it all out. Um, there is a whole, a whole load. There's, there's a, quite a few now old episodes which if you haven't listened to um, they're there to be listened to I'm not saying I recommend them some I'm proud of some I'm quite embarrassed about but anyway I've enjoyed this I hope you have too um, and I do hope you listen again in the meantime thank you and goodbye (laughs) 